Good afternoon. So I was watching the video. Uh, the question that came to my mind was, how does the heart change? And I think something that Christianity has always sought to answer is how change takes place. And generally speaking, our answer for change is obedience. In other words, if we're different on the outside, then we must be different on the inside. And so the Christians will have a specific lifestyle that they follow and certain rules and regulations that they follow that are different to that of those who do not believe in God or who believe in Jesus Christ. And so uh, what I wanted to talk about this afternoon was obedience or growing gracefully, if you will. If you have your Bibles, uh, if you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, what I want to do is have a Bible study with you more than a discourse, really, and very interested in seeing how the discussions will take place after this talk. But yeah, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, and this is one of the many verses on obedience that the Bible highlights. And it's from verses like these that we have a specific Christian movements, and I kind of want to talk about that for a little bit. But first, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. And this says, But among you there must not be either sexual immorality, impurity of any kind, or greed, as these are not fitting for the saints. Neither should there be vulgar speech, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, all of which are out of character, but rather thanksgiving. For you can be confident of this one thing, that no person who is immoral, impure, or greedy, such a person is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So there you have it. You've got a few things that are listed here that are contrary to God, and people who practice these things apparently will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. In other words, if we do these things, you cannot have peace with God, you cannot be in heaven. There's kind of this sense of loss of security for people who practice these things in their lives. Now, if I look at this list, it makes me think, because I think, well, who can have peace with God then? <laughs> I want to know. Like, You're not allowed to joke around or jest, to have this kind of mindset of revelry, if you will. And I think, you know, I've, I've cracked a joke here there. Like, what, what, what is this talking about? And what happened in history is, between 1730 and 1770, there was this movement called the First Great Awakening. And you have people like Jonathan Edwards, who was a famous American theologian, who read passages like this and were influenced in his preaching. And I don't know if you've ever gone online and Googled Jonathan Edwards or any of his sermons, but he has a pretty well-known sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you read the manuscript, it's pretty hard-hating. He's basically telling everybody they're going to hell. And so what happened is you have this movement of revival where people heard sermons like this and decided, you know what, my life is not right with God. And they began to change their behavior. And throughout different parts of Europe, this took place as well. And there was kind of this movement of revival, if you will, or revival, depending on how you define revival. And so, if you look at other verses, like Revelation 21, and we'll go to this later on, but this is just in reference. Revelation 21 talks about a very similar group of people that are going to be punished, basically. So, basically, what happened is, as people read these, these passages as they preached, they came to the conclusion... If these sinful acts or if these types of behavior lead to being lost and not having peace with God, then the natural result is, well, if I just don't practice these things, then I will be right with God, right? 
So if I do these bad things, I am not right with God. If I just avoid or abstain from these behaviors, I will be right with God. And the Bible answer to that is no, actually. <laughs> and so if you think of famous verses like Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says, By the works of the law, no man will be justified, or no one can have peace with God by, based off of what they do. And so if you follow that line of thinking... You cannot make it into heaven for doing certain behaviors, but you also cannot make it into heaven by not doing those behaviors. And so the question then leads us to, how do we have peace with God then? <laughs> and what role does a change in behavior actually have in someone's life, or especially in our context, the Christian journey? And so today's presentation is an attempt at working through and responding to this question. And yeah, I'll invite you guys to turn with me in your Bibles, and we're just going to go through a Bible study. Uh, we're going to go back to the book of Romans, if you can join me in Romans chapter 7. This question, I find for me personally, is one of the most frustrating, complicated questions that I've asked as a Christian, because in my mind, I always struggle with where obedience falls in my own personal life, and how do I have peace, and what I have found is that just as the Bible says in Romans 3 verse 20 that no one can find peace with God by what they do, yeah, I, I find that obedience is not the key to a change of heart, and it was quite a challenge for me. So what I want to do today is share with you two different kinds of obedience that are presented in the Bible. Two different kinds of obedience. One obedience is labeled the works of the flesh, according to Paul in the book of Romans. The other type of obedience is called the life by the Spirit. And I kind of want to break down these two different kinds of obedience. So we'll look at the first one. So Romans chapter 7 and looking at verse 5. And this identifies the work of the flesh. Here's what the Bible says. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful desires aroused by the law were active in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So here this verse says, the law comes to somebody who is uh, living by the works of the flesh and they want to do what is right and here comes a law telling them what to do and they follow that and instead of life, it leads to death according to this text. And so my question is, how would obedience or how would laws or rules or regulations cause somebody to, rather than become good, become bad? And as I reflect upon my own journey of seeking after that which is right and kind of asking myself, well, how do I become obedient? I have found that there was a period in my life where I made it a point to be very, very obedient. And I had heard all these sermons and read through the Bible and read through different types of literature to basically figure out what does holiness mean. And basically I had made my life very disciplined, and I had a regiment that I would not change for anybody. And so my, my schedule was basically, if I can wake up by 5 o'clock in the morning, I'm doing pretty good. Like, that's holy right there. And if I can wake up before 5 o'clock in the morning, that's extra holy. So 4.30, I'm doing pretty good. 4 o'clock, even better. And uh, what ended up happening is, because I would go to bed and wake up at the same time, I didn't have to use alarm clock anymore, and my body would wake me up regularly. And not that that's not a bad thing, but just my body would wake me up regularly because I was on this schedule, and I would think, okay, I'm going to wake up, it's 4.30, the sun isn't even out, 
I don't know how many people are awake, which is good, because if somebody was awake before me and they were not reading the Bible, then, oh, like, you know, how, how dare I be a Christian and not wake up earlier than them to read the Bible? And so I would think, I've got to wake up before everybody else. And I would open up my Bible, and for probably around two to three hours, almost every single day, I would read the Bible. And uh, I would journal that which I was reading, and it was good because I, I learned a lot. But on the other hand, the attitude was, I've got to be holy. And then I had a prayer request. I had a prayer journal that was, I don't know how many pages long, and I would make sure and make it to that prayer journal every single day. And so after about four or five hours uh, spending time with God, I thought, I am holy and I am ready for the day. And then what would happen is I would come to breakfast, and it would be uh, around nine o'clock, and I, I, had a, I had a flatmate that we would share the groceries and we would share breakfast and he would have eaten all the cereal for that day and I was just irate. I mean, I let him have it. I was like, how dare you eat all the food and not consider your other flatmates? I mean, we pay for this food together. You know that, right? And I was just very, very upset and I thought, I just spent five hours with God. Why am I so mad at this guy? And I could not figure out what had happened there. So anyway, I had a schedule and yet I was very upset. And so scripture memory was a very big part of my life, and I made it a point to memorize portions of scripture and quote them whenever necessary, especially if somebody had said the wrong thing or if temptation had come, I would make sure that I you know, had the right text in mind. And anyway, in my mind, I felt like I was pretty, I was on the right track. I'm ready for heaven. Now, anyway, needless to say, and I've kind of alluded to it, the, this obedience led me to a feeling of superiority, that I was kind of on a different level than other people. I kind of had this sense of a judgmental attitude when people were not living up to my standards, and I would think, you know, deep down inside, I know you know that this is what Christianity is all about. You know you need to give up that whatever, <laughs> that fried chicken or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I had this mindset of what was right, and what ended up happening is it led to this almost isolation of, you know, I've got me and my friends that obey a certain way, and then there's everybody else who is just not on the same level. And so, yeah, it led to this sense of isolation and also hypocrisy in terms of deep down inside in my heart, there really wasn't a change that was taking place. There was still frustration. There was still fear. There was still insecurity. And so there was this obedience and extreme, yeah, there was just a sense of I've got to do everything right. That didn't lead to more life, but rather it was kind of burning me out and actually causing me to not want to give more to God. It was causing me to want to give less to God, actually. And so when I read Paul's description of the works of the flesh, I really resonate with that because I feel like, you know, I, I experienced that for a good six years of my life. So Paul says there is a type of obedience that seeks to keep the law that leads to death, actually. Now, there's a second type of obedience. And if you keep reading in Romans chapter 7, and we read on to verse 6 and 7, it says, But now we have been released from the law because we have died to what controlled us, so that we may serve in the new life of the Spirit and not under the old written code. And in other places, it talks about this life in the Spirit as peace, as freedom, as security, something that gives you strength. And Paul says, this type of living puts to death the works of the law. Now, when Paul writes this, he's basically saying, listen, 
it de-emphasizes, and I'll just put my own word out there, obedience. And I know that sounds a little bit foreign, but Paul is almost de-emphasizing obedience. Now, when I use the word obedience, I'm just referring to obedience as the end goal. In other words, when we think that which is good, obedience is good. So if I obey, I am good. Does that make sense? Now, what Paul is saying is, obedience is not the end goal. And even if you do obey, it doesn't mean you are good. And so, here Paul says there's a different kind of a mindset towards obedience that leads to more life. And here's what it looks like. And I'm still kind of on that journey. So while I can identify with the legalism and with the uh, other type of obedience, this is still a very new concept for me. And so, here's what it's supposed to look like, at least in terms of from the Bible. The true obedience is supposed to lead to humility rather than superiority and having a mindset of a, a judgmental attitude. It's supposed to lead to humility. And rather than leading to isolation, it's supposed to lead to community and unity where people come together and it's supposed to draw more and more and more people together regardless of how obedient or disobedient they are. It leads to community. And that's why in the Bible, God gives this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, right? If you experience this true type of obedience, it leads to people being able to grow closer together. I don't know if you have tried to follow God, and because you're trying to follow God, it causes your relationships to actually become more complicated rather than less complicated. And I know I've experienced that in my own life where Jinha and I will be arguing, and I go to her, and I say, you know what we need? We need to pray right now. And you know, she doesn't want to pray. (laughs) And I can't figure out why, and I think... The Bible says that you should pray when you're not in agreement with one another. And in my mind, it's so confusing because I'm doing what God wants me to do, and yet it's causing more friction rather than unity. And so my question is, how does that that work? And so the Bible is saying there's a kind of attitude towards obedience that leads to love and community and unity and humility. And so, here in Romans chapter 8, just the next chapter over, verse 6, it kind of summarizes what Paul is talking about when he contrasts the work of the flesh and life in the Spirit. And in Romans chapter 8, and we read verse 6, it says, For the outlook of the flesh is death, but the outlook of the Spirit is life and peace. And so, here we have these two different concepts. And my question is, I definitely know what true obedience is not, and I kind of have a vague idea of what true obedience looks like, but how do I actually have this experience of true obedience? Now, there are a couple different schools of thought in this area, and last time we were talking about whether or not there's choice or whether or not there isn't choice. There are also big-name theologians that kind of debate over what obedience looks like and how it's played out in the life. The first theologian, his name is Pelagius, and I'm Curious, how many of you guys have ever heard of Pelagius? Alright, now Pelagius broke down man into three different sections. It's capacity, will, and action. Capacity, will, and action. And what Pelagius said was, the grace of God played out in a human's life is basically that he gives the human the ability to obey or the ability to change. That's grace and that's capacity. Now, when it comes to the will, he's saying what you need to change your mind from disobedience to obedience is a revelation from God. In other words, as long as you get the truth 
from the Bible and you know how to do right rather than wrong, you will do right eventually. And he was a big proponent of the good will of man, if you will. He kind of didn't really believe in the fallen nature of man. He just kind of thought, you know what? If people knew what was best for them, they would do it. That's kind of what he taught. Now, on the other hand, you've got this guy named Augustine. And he read Pelagius' works, and he was really unhappy because he was saying, you are downplaying and watering down what the grace of God really, really means. Now, if you would think of someone like Pelagius, he would read verses like John 17, 17, where it says, sanctify them through your truth, your, help me out, word is truth. And so Pelagius would read John 17 and think, listen, you are sanctified, or you are made pure, or you are made better by truth. And so you just need to take in truth, and you will become good. Now, what Augustine would do is he would say, no, 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 you're, you're missing the point. You have to look at Bible verses like Philippians chapter 2, verses 13. And I'll read this for you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. And this says, For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. In other words, God will come, and he will do for you that which you cannot do. In other words, Augustine believed that mankind had fallen nature, and the natural tendency was not to obey, but to disobey. So in other words, you've had those experiences when you're by yourself, and your thoughts and your mind are left to wander, and you kind of, you're like, do you usually think of, how can I solve the problems of the world? How can I alleviate starvation from Africa? And some people do think that, but a lot of times we also think of bad things, if you will. And Augustine would say, listen, human nature is fallen. Human nature is fallen. And so you need the power of God outside of yourself to come and do something supernatural in your life that you cannot do. And that's where change comes from. So on one hand, you've got two camps. Pelagius, who believes in, if you just learn what is right, you will do right. Versus, you're not going to do right even if you know what's right, good for you. That's why you need the help of God. And you've got these two camps. Now I have a question for you guys. Which camp do you belong in? Do you agree with Pelagius, or do you believe or agree with Augustine? So I'm going to do another hand-raising exercise. I know you guys like this a lot. So, Pelagius, those of you who believe that Pelagius is right, raise your hand. Now, how many of you believe that Augustine is right? Raise your hand. And how many of you don't want to raise your hand? Raise your hand. (laughs) I got you. (laughs) All right. Now, here's my point. Most of us would agree that Pelagius isn't right. If you just know what's right, you'll do it. If you go to the airport and you go through duty-free, and in Melbourne, it's, you can't avoid it, right? Because they placed it right in the terminal. Like, you have to walk through duty-free, which they're really smart about that. But when you walk through duty-free, there are two major items that are sold that I can see. One is alcohol, and the other one is tobacco. And they're just sold in huge quantities because you don't have to pay tax. So it's like most people that drink would go, hey. Now, when you actually walk through the smoking section, there is one sign that is bigger than every other sign. And that sign is the cancer warning sign. It says, warning, do not smoke. Smoking causes cancer. And it's like this black, huge sign. But it takes up like a huge space on the floor, which means they're selling a lot of cigarettes. And so my question is this. It is scientifically proven that smoking is not good for you. And yet, people still smoke. And we might look at that and say, oh, well, that's kind of silly. But even as Christians, I find myself thinking the same thing. If I just tell this person this is wrong, 
I expect that they will change. Now, what I'm finding more and more, and my son is only nine months old, so I can give him the benefit of the doubt that he actually doesn't understand anything that I'm saying. Because usually when I tell him no, he smiles. Like, I'm like, Micah, do not go up the stairs. And he'll turn around, give me this big smile, and then keep crawling. Right? And I'm pretty sure that he doesn't understand me. And at the same time, I think that when he grows up and he does understand me, he's still going to do the same thing. And what I find is in my own life and people that I have known treat me the same way too. As long as Roy knows what to do, or I think as long as so-and-so knows what to do, they will change. So this huge list that we read in Ephesians, immorality, all these things, don't be immoral. Now, who doesn't know that immorality is a bad thing? Like, who thinks to themselves, uh, you know, I'm married and I've, I've got a life partner, I'm in a committed relationship, but maybe it won't be bad if I just pick up another partner on the side. Maybe they'll just, maybe they'll be happy for me. Hey, like, it's, it's not really this thing that, it's not a matter of not knowing, right? But the big question is, how does that true obedience actually take place? Now, on the other hand, when you think of the camp of Augustine, it's almost spiritualizing and making something so supernatural that it isn't understandable. So it's kind of like, okay, God will come into my life and he's going to change me and he's going to give me strength that I've never experienced before and then one day I'm just going to be able to obey and my heart's going to be changed. And there you go. And that's how it works. And I have found myself wondering on both sides and it's, it hasn't driven me crazy, but it's really, like, I really wondered, you know, God, how come... How come my heart isn't? How come my heart isn't different? Yeah, I can change my outward behavior, but like, how do I get rid of those DV shoes? And then on the other hand, on the Pelagius side, it's kind of like, all right, if I just keep reading that which is right, then I will do that which is right. But then I find myself getting more upset because I'm seeing everybody else that's not doing the right thing. And so, anyway, here's what the Bible says. If you go to Ephesians chapter three, verses sixteen to twenty-one, it says. I pray that according to the wealth of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person. And so here in verse 16, Paul says, there is the inner person, the heart, the person inside the person that can be strengthened. In verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that because you have been rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and thus to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power that is working within us is able to do far beyond all that we ask or think, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, there are a few words that stick out to me as I read through this passage. Paul is saying there is an experience where Christ can come into the heart and strengthen the inner man. In other words, it's not just an outward change, it's an inward change that becomes a reality. And words that he uses to describe this is being rooted and grounded in love. That you can know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And he says, look, if you can get the love of Christ and understand the love of Christ, it will change everything about you. Now, here's the difference between the second model of obedience and the first model of obedience. The first model of obedience, 
emphasizes obedience in outward action. And as long as you do that, you're right. But we already know that there are flaws in that. And so in the second model, what Paul says is, listen, if you focus and emphasize the love of Christ and de-emphasize the outward action, you'll get both. But if you only focus on the obedience, you can miss the love of Christ. Now, we've talked about uh, in the previous weeks the importance of accepting the love of Christ and the fact that Jesus understands us. He's died for us. And in Calvary, we know that God understands us because when I make mistakes, I can look to Calvary and say, you know what? There is forgiveness. And in that act, God communicates His love, His righteousness, the fact that He understands us. And Paul is saying, if you can live in that experience, in that knowledge that God really genuinely loves you, the obedience will come. And let me try and illustrate this way. And I think I've shared this before, but I just can't think of a better illustration. Before, when Jinha and I were courting, I would always try to make up for my mistakes, or I would try to make her happy by doing good things for her. Like, I would wash Jinha's car, I would vacuum it out really good, fill it up with petrol, I would uh, make food for her, clean her apartment, do all these things. And Jinha would be like, you know all those things that you did? Like on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the best, 1 being the greatest, it's kind of like a 3 or a 4. And I was kind of like, <laughs> like it was just gut-wrenching. And I thought, I did all these things from my heart. Like, I love you, you know? And she's kind of like, that, that wasn't really it. And I asked her, well, what, what do you want? And she told me, quality time. Okay, quality time. And so I, would, I, I shared before, I would set time apart just for Jinha, a whole day, no studying, no nothing, just Jinha. And even after that, she's like, hmm, that wasn't it either. I'm like, what do you want? And I'm just thinking, I've, I've gone through the checklist. I've done all the nice things. I've spent time with her. I've done that which she has asked me to do. What more can I do? How can I really connect with this woman? And she, she started using words like emotional connection. And I kind of had no idea what she was talking about, right? And I kind of thought, yeah, like, I don't know what you're talking about. And the more that I thought about it, and the more that I think about it even now, the more it makes sense to me. Because what I'm finding is she knows what she wants. And in communication, it's, anyway, it's difficult. But I, I think I figured it out, right? And what she wants to know is, I just need to know, I need to connect with you in a way that communicates that you really, really love me and give me security. You're not going to leave me. You appreciate me. Like you, like, and we're able to communicate that to each other. I need that time period. And honestly, it's just five minutes of that. Just sit down with me. Look at me in my eyes and communicate your love. That's what I need. And I want to communicate to you my love for you. I need to connect. I need to connect. And from that comes, I clean the house, I do these things. And what I found is, if I connect with her, and then I clean the house, she's like, thank you so much for cleaning. And, and she like really appreciates it. Now, if I just do the cleaning and I don't do the connecting, it's kind of like, yeah, that was good. But there's still a sense of like, are you doing that because you like things cleaned, or are you doing that because you're doing something nice for me? You know what I mean? And so she's saying, I need that. And now, in the gospel, God comes to us as a God and says, listen, yeah, there are acts of obedience that I appreciate, the keeping of the commandments and etc., etc., and that whole list of Ephesians that we just read. But what God is saying is, what I want you to know is that I want to connect with you. I want to communicate to you that 
I deeply, deeply understand, appreciate, love, and I want you to know that I feel that way about you. And if, if you don't get that part, everything else is misunderstood. Everything else is misunderstood. Because you can obey, you can do all the right things and not love at all. And not know that God loves you and not be able to love other people that do different things than you do. Or have a different lifestyle that you do. But if you can get the love of God, you will be able to prioritize love to that person and obedience will come. So in ending, what I want to do is, I've got the stick. Have any of you ever, when, when we were younger, we used to see what we can balance on our hand. And we would always like, try and grab the bigger and bigger and bigger object and see like what, what we could do. So I started out with tennis rackets and then it went to like table chairs and then we were like, well, let's grab the table. And it was a small table, but anyway... And it was just kind of like, it was one of these games, and I'm wondering, has anybody ever done the same thing where they've tried to balance something on their hand? All right. I'm wondering if one of you would be willing to come and do this exercise. Balance the stick on your hand. I've got two people that are thinking about it. Who's going to come first? Bronwyn, you want to come up? (laughs) And what I want you to do... No, we'll be very careful. Now... What I'd like you to do is, and I know you already know how to do this, but I'll just give you instructions anyway, for the sake of the illustration. Now, as you're balancing, I'd like you to look at the top of the stick and balance. Oh, pretty good. She's got very good control. All right, cool. We know that you're very proficient at stick balancing. Now, I want you to try doing it a second time, but this time with different instructions. As you balance, what I want you to do is to look at your hand and do the exact same thing. So no looking up, just the hand. Just the hand. That's pretty good. <laughs> now, if, thank you. Everyone give Brother a hand. Now, what you'll notice is the second... Uh, I'll ask you guys. Do you think she had an easier time doing it the first time or the second time? First time, right? Now, it all depends on where you focus. Like, you're doing the same action... And she looks at the top of the stick, and she's able to balance well. But the moment she looks at herself, at her hand, she's not able to perform as easily, right? It becomes a lot more difficult, and she almost dropped the stick. Who knows, like, what would have happened later on. But, and so, what I'm simply saying is this. With obedience, the tendency with obedience is to focus on the performance. And what happens is we look at ourselves. How am I doing? How did, oh, I, I obeyed today. Good job. Oh, that person didn't, didn't obey very well. Bad frowny face sticker for you. And, and the difference is this. When you look to Christ, you're able to actually obey. But if you don't look to Christ, you can obey for a little while. It becomes a lot more difficult. And I just want to emphasize today where the focal point in our lives really is. And the moment you see God as somebody who is not just trying to give you love to get what He wants the way that we approach obedience completely, completely changes. And I encourage you to keep thinking through and as we discuss, really to explore these concepts. And so, yeah, with that, may you find true obedience and life and community. And, uh, yeah.
Can you join me for prayer? Father, as we consider you and your greatness and how good and faithful you are, Father, we come to this place seeking after you, seeking after something different. And Father, we know that you have an extraordinary work that you want to perform in our hearts and in our lives. And we give you our ordinary obedience, not because we know it completes that extraordinary work, but just as an act of faith, knowing that you're going to do something. And so we give you just the little bit that we have in response to your great love. And so it's my prayer that we would be able to experience this in our lives in a practical way. And uh, as we discuss, may we be able to um, understand on a deeper level. We pray in your name. Amen.